Welcome to the JMD podcast for another foray into the fascinating world of inherited metabolic disease. This fortnightly podcast explores all aspects of metabolic medicine from basic biochemistry to screening, diagnostics, treatment and more. This episode is one of over 60, so there's plenty to peruse and interest you, so be sure to check them out, but not before listening to this latest podcast on training competencies in adult metabolic medicine. So there's so much to talk about in IMD, over 1,500 disorders and a fair bit of complexity in amongst those. But sometimes you need to take a step back and look at the wider picture around how we can provide care for these conditions. Inherited metabolic disorders have often been looked at as childhood conditions, and as a consequence, service development has tended to focus on paediatrics. However, the world is finally catching up to the fact that adults have IMD too, and that's why today's subject is so important. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Sandra Sers back to the podcast to discuss work she did with her colleagues, Dr. Elisa Fabro and Dr. Annalisa Secchi, trying to develop a set of training competencies in adult metabolic medicine, and uh, also looking at her recent editorial that set out the need for such an undertaking far more eloquently than I ever could. Sandra, welcome back. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So perhaps you could begin by telling me why this work is so necessary. Well, I think that those of us who have been working in the field of adult uh, metabolic medicine for a long time were aware that there was really a pressing need to develop fit-for-purpose training programs. There has been some evolving literature on this point. Uh, my colleagues on this paper, uh, Annalisa Secchi and Elisa Fabro, previously had done a survey of working IMD physicians to ask them how well did their training actually prepare them for the work that they had to do. This uh, survey was several years ago, and uh, at that time, and in fact currently, the United Kingdom was the only uh, jurisdiction that had accredited training in adult IMD medicine. And what the results of their survey were was that basically 73% of the respondents felt that the training that they had received in IMD medicine before they actually just started to work in the adult IMD field was not helpful at all. Uh, so their <laughs> comment was basically they were learning on the job. And this is not surprising because prior to that survey published in 2019, uh, I had worked with other colleagues around the world to look at the case mix of the adult clinics. So this was part of work where we were trying to define, you know, what kind of personnel are needed to run an adult clinic? What does it look like? What kind of people do you need to care for the patients? And what we found were two important things from that uh, paper, which I believe was 2015. Uh, the first was that the case mix of the adult clinics is quite different from the case mix of the pediatric patients. This is, again, not surprising because of the second point, which was about half of the patients being followed at the adult clinics uh, had their IMD diagnosed as adults. In my own particular clinic, when we, at that time, we reviewed our case mix and we found that 80% of the patients we were following had their IMD diagnosed as an adult. So we were at the higher end uh, of that spectrum. So the types of patients are different. And the problems that they have are different uh, because adults, for example, are less likely to you know, get viral infections that send all of the kids with uh, small molecule diseases to the emergency 
But by the way, they are going to get, you know, uh, coronary artery disease. They're going to get pregnant. They're going to, you know, use drugs. I can uh, tell you, you know, very hair raising situations where one of my urea cycle uh, defect patients developed an interest in cocaine. So this is never going to work <laughs> out, right? That, that combination is never going to work out. So while we think of the pediatric IMD population and the adult IMD population, I think we think of it as a Venn diagram where there's overlap, but the circles separate. And so I think that is one really important thing to understand. A second really important thing to understand is that actually it is completely antithetical to how other aspects of medicine are practiced. In every other aspect of medicine, pediatrics and adults are, are separated, right? There are pediatric nephrologists and there are adult nephrologists, and they have a, a central Venn, Venn diagram, and a lot of what they see is also separate. And so it's actually IMD medicine is the, the holdout there where they think that they can all be dealt with by a single clinician. And certainly, I think the bulk of adults currently worldwide are being looked after uh, by people with a pediatric focus. And that, I think, is a testament to how dedicated the pediatric IMD physicians are, because uh, I know that most people in pediatrics didn't go into pediatrics to look after 65-year-old men, okay? <laughs> uh, and uh, first of all, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, they just are just aware uh, that there is this pressing need uh, and they have no one to transition their patients to. So whilst completely acknowledging the very, very high level of commitment of pediatric IMD physicians, we need to understand that uh, pediatric physicians are not as good at looking after adult healthcare problems as adult physicians, just as adult physicians are not good at looking after pediatric healthcare problems. So, you know, there's the saying that children are not small adults, and this is 100% true, true, but adults are not large children. So, you know, let me just talk about some really common examples, you know, people dosing antibiotics per kilo. You don't do, dose antibiotics per kilo. Fluid management, right, which is uh, really obviously a key part of any uh, acutely ill, uh, metabolically unstable patient, completely different in adults than children. If you try and manage them the same way, either adult pediatric or pediatric to adult, you will kill them right? It is completely different. Uh, we need to have adults looked after in adult facilities so that there are CT scanners that can take the ones that are overweight, right? The, they don't fit in the smaller ones. So they have the right size of endotracheal tubes if they need to be intubated. So they have dialysis catheters that fit them, right? So these, these are all the things that if you, if you sort of take a step back, you realize are actually normal. That's normally the way medicine is conducted. So what we need to do is we need to say, hey, we need to have more trained adult specialists. And that's partly because they need to be able to look after the much bigger adult population because, you know, the pediatric people have people from zero to 18 and we have people, you know, 18 forever because we have no exit strategy. And those people need to have specialized skills that other adult specialties like internal medicine, uh, for example, in neurology don't have because they need to be able to look after the IMD as well, as well as the comorbid disease. So that's really where this comes from. Well, I mean, as someone who does medication areas work, I certainly can see the, what happens when people keep going up and up on their antibiotic per kilo doses. Although I would also argue that certainly if we look at some of the politicians in the world, there are certainly some adults who are big children 
Um, <laughs> well, particularly uh, in the UK, I think. Yeah, <laughs> we, uh, we, we're we're not proud. Um, so, how does one even begin to design a new curriculum? I mean, can we call it a curriculum? Uh, I think we, we're using the term training competencies because this is the current uh, stylish word that accreditation bodies use. By the time we get an accredited training program in Canada, they probably will have changed it, changed the word because this is a work in progress. So what we did with this was, and, you know, bear in mind that we were working from the viewpoint of like, you know, I have worked 22 years in the field. Annalisa also had uh, worked a very long time in the field and we were working with people who were very highly experienced in the field. So this is the thing. We know what we have to know because we are doing it. So in trying to design how to actually structure the project, so we knew we were doing internal medicine, we knew we were doing medical genetics, and certainly we knew that we were doing some, uh, you know, IMD work. So what we did was we took the objectives of training or the training competencies from all of those disciplines. So from internal medicine, from medical genetics, from the adult IMD program in the UK, uh, which was at that time and still the only accredited adult training program in the world. And from the pediatric IMD program, we took the Canadian ones because I'm Canadian, but uh, you know they're, they're very similar. And we put them together in a spreadsheet and then we uh, sent them out to a core group of highly experienced physicians. So that's the first phase. So these are people from London, from Sydney, from uh, Amsterdam, from France. So the, the, the very, very large adult clinics. And we said, okay, look at these, which ones are completely useless, right? Which ones, you know, you don't have to know. And we dropped some off. Then we sent around the revised list with some of them dropped off. Uh, and some were added, interestingly, I'll come to that in the moment. Then we sent around the revised list to the uh, adult metabolic uh, listserv, which is maintained by the SSIM. Uh, and we got people to rank them, you know, on a, a scale is not important, uh, slightly important, you know, uh, important or very important. And we took everything, we dropped off into everything below a certain threshold. And then we sent them back to the core group and said, okay, did they drop off things that they didn't want to know that they actually do have to know because clinicians do that just like students. But, uh, and then the list was then tightened up and made sure that we had what the physicians felt were important. And then we divided the competencies based on their ranking of relative importance into uh, mandatory competencies and recommended competencies. And that's because we recognize that, uh, you know, there were so many of them having taken competencies from four different disciplines that any training program is unlikely to be able to meet all of the needs. And this is also the case with any type of training program, right? Um, and then we sent that final list around for, for a vote. And that was, again, back to the full metabolic listserv. And, and we got 100% acceptance of, of these. So, you know, I think basically what we did was we used sort of a modified Delphi process where we asked people who were doing the work, what is it that you need to know in order to do this work? So, you know, there's lots of work to be done in terms of developing accredited programs. You can't just have training competencies. And these, these are also uh, what we would refer to as medical expert training competencies. So as you know, training programs have multiple different areas, which uh, physicians have to be trained in. So not just facts and science, but they also have to be trained in communication and advocacy and, you know, whatever those other areas of competency beyond 
on the what we refer to as medical expert competencies are going to differ country to country because each country uses a different medical education framework. So in order to actually develop an accredited training program, you would basically take these medical expert competencies and then add the other uh, non-expert competencies to them. There may also be country to country, some difference in which medical expert competencies they prioritize based on patterns of referral. And I'll give you an example of this in Canada. Wilson's disease and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, you know, two of the more common inborn errors affecting adults, are looked after by completely different groups of clinicians and have always been. So the Wilson's disease patients, you know, go to the hepatologists or to the neurologists, uh, for example, and the alpha-1s go to the uh, go to the respirologists. So whereas some of the European adult IMD clinics were seeing quite a few of those patients, others were not. So in Canada, for example, we might say based on the patterns of referral, those are not priorities. Uh, but you know, the point was to say, okay, here is somewhere that you can start. And if you want to develop a training program in your own country or even at your own institution that's not accredited, use this as a backdrop and uh, at least you have some place to start. And I mean, it's a really comprehensive way of putting things together, but you've obviously said different people have different priorities. You've got people who are leaving things off, perhaps they shouldn't have done. Were there any controversial inclusions or omissions in the final document? No, no, there weren't. I think I was actually surprised at how many of them were ranked. So what I think was the most interesting was the ranking of the skills around critical appraisal skills for rare diseases. So these competencies that uh, we added, so they are not competencies that exist in any of the base programs from which we drew the initial list. And we added them ourselves because we knew from working in the field that this is really a big problem, like trying to know, should I use this drug or not? Because the studies are terrible and don't give me any of the data that I need. And these are the side effects and whatever. So we knew that from working in the field. So there is a, a list of four or five of competencies around critical appraisal and rare diseases that were amongst the highest rated competencies in the whole group. Now, these, of course, would also be relevant to pediatric metabolic medicine, of course, right? And so, as we know, the field of how you critically appraise uh, drugs for rare diseases is, is rapidly evolving. No one actually knows how to do it. So, you know, this is an ongoing area of learning. So this, I think, to me was one of the most interesting things was how how strongly the participants prioritized uh, those skills of critical appraisal. And obviously you and I have spoken before about drugs in rare diseases, and it's, uh, it's I think it's going to be a conversation that runs and runs. Yes. Um, this paper has been really popular online when I've I've shared it both on sort of LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And it means that lots of people have been reading it. And actually, I think some, some patients have been reading it as well. And one of the things that, that came out is when people were ranking statements, one of the areas that perhaps was ranked as it was still ranked as very important, but it was a sort of a slightly lower percentage of, of respondents ranking things as very important was around transition mm. management. Yes. And I wondered if that surprised you at all, because I mean, this is how many of the patients will enter your service. And we know that paediatrics tends to be very different to adult medicine. Yes. So, so I'm, I'm really glad you asked me that question because um, I think this really exposes uh, a lot of the issues around transition. So the thing about transition from an adult perspective is that preparing a patient for the transition to adult care is something that has to be done by pediatricians. 
So if you look at the transition literature and, you know, there's a lot of it and there's different models and whatever, it actually suggests that transitions start around the age of 10 or 12, depending on the sort of intellectual capabilities where you might start having the patient in the room by themselves for a few minutes, right, without mom and dad. And then there's a list of sort of projects that you work on with the patient. So can they name their disease? Do they know uh, what their medicines are for? Do they know... uh, about their diet and you work through those between the ages of sort of 12 to 16 and you also in that time need to get them to understand what it is that they're going to face so the thing is is that you can't actually take a person who has been in the pediatric setting their whole life and plop them down in the adult setting and then start preparing them for the adult healthcare. So it's not that we don't feel that transition preparedness is extremely important. In fact, uh, my group and and other groups, uh, many of whom actually were participants in this uh, survey, have done a lot of uh, work uh, actually establishing how prepared were the patients that we got for the transition to adult care. And, And as you know, this is a big problem, an ongoing problem, and the adult clinics are very happy to advocate for resources in the pediatric setting to help with this, to collaborate with people in the pediatric setting, for example, by having joint clinics where the adult people potentially go to the pediatric center and where the adult people host the, the kids, you know, at the adult center so that, that they can see the physical space, they can figure out where they park, see if there's a cafeteria for them to get a coffee, you know, like those kind of things. But the actual work of transition, unfortunately, has to fall to the pediatrics. And then the transition literature is really clear about this, because otherwise, you just can't do it. So I think you should interpret that for what it is that they feel it's very important to know how to deal with transitionally youth, because you can't treat them just the same as adults, but the preparation to get them there has to be done in the pediatric setting and has to start really early. Uh, the literature supports that. Yeah, I think it's difficult because obviously we have these hard cutoffs that, you know, peds ends at 16 or 18, depending on where you are, but we know that adolescent brains are still developing into the mid twenties. So it is a difficult thing to manage. Well, you mentioned the, the adult metabolic training pathway in the UK. And I think that you're process of development was going on at the point that that had already been ratified so there's two things they were happening in parallel but not together given that you've you've trying to achieve the same things how well do they align um well so that is interesting so when we started this the revised adult metabolic guidelines which came out in the summer of 2021 they were not available so we were working with the 2016 training objectives so the 2021 training objectives have more of what we identified as priorities than the 2016 objectives. And I think, you know, probably when adult metabolic medicine started in the UK, I'm just saying this from looking at the guidelines, I wasn't following it closely at that time, but probably when it started, they thought that what the people were going to be doing, like there's an emphasis on cholesterol and diabetes right? But you have other doctors to do cholesterol and diabetes, right? Uh, So I think they maybe thought that what they would be doing was going to be something different than what they were doing, which was IMDs. And so the, the 2021 has a lot more IMD stuff, but they are still missing a significant proportion of the stuff that was identified as priorities from our survey, including, of course, many of our participants were from the UK, 
so the, the point of this is not to say that, that these are set in stone, but they're saying this is the place to, where you're going to start. These are the patients that your adult IMD clinicians are seeing. And so they have to know how to deal with these patients. And that, of course, is, is different from that. So you had UK engagement, you've obviously got Canadian engagement, you've got European engagement, you mentioned you had Australian engagement, you didn't get the United States engagement. So, uh, yeah, so we had six continents, six continents of engagement. Uh, so, uh, but the North American continent engagement is uh, entirely from Canada, but we did also have South America and Asia. And uh, so we didn't get the US and that was by design. So I did reach out to the Society of Inherited Metabolic Diseases, uh, the SIMD, which is the US Metabolic Diseases Physician Group. And I spoke with a couple of very prominent members there who I know actually do adult metabolic medicine. And so the question was, do you actually have a way that we can contact people who do adult metabolic medicine, as opposed to contacting all of your members? And they did not. And the reason that this is really important is going back to the uh, paper by Annalisa Secchi, where she previously polled the working physicians and said, how well did your training prepare you? And they said it did not. So the training that they were given was training that was determined by people who were doing pediatric IMD medicine. So had they had a group of people who worked with adults and saw adults whether or not they also saw children, but people who, who did have a significant adult focus, then we would have included them. But what we didn't want was dilution of the input from working adult metabolic physicians by a bunch of working pediatric metabolic physicians, because we are not asking the question, what do pediatric IMD physicians think the adult IMD physicians need to know? We are asking the question, what do adult metabolic physicians think adult metabolic physicians should know? And this was really important. And in fact, you know, in my conversations with the SIMD members, right, they completely understood that. Now, subsequently, the SIMD is actually trying to pull together an adult working group. Uh, and this has been, uh, you know, a work in progress. And so they are aware of this competency document and have, uh, you know, asked if they could distribute it, for example, to members. And of course, I gave it to them because it's my intention that anybody who could use it should use it. But now it's in the public domain, so it's even easier. So so that that was why. So had we been had some way to get input from just those who actually have adult experience, then of course, we would have included them, but we did not. Oh, that makes sense. Well, I hope that we will be able to involve them in future revisions then. So I mean, what, what does happen next? Yes. Well, I think that is uh, that is really a great question because, you know, uh, training programs have to be live, uh, right? And they have to adapt and they have to have ongoing evaluation, you know, to make sure that they are staying up to date on what people need. I'm not sure what the best approach is. I am hoping, it's my personal hope, that perhaps, you know, just as the uh, ETAC committee looks at pediatric training programs, that they will also look at adult training programs and help us keep those documents live. This document has been reviewed at the, uh, at the ETAC, and there will be work ongoing from that. But I think that this is really a big question. 
what has to happen and what we need to do is we need to say, okay, what's the best organization to champion this? I think that having individual countries try and keep individual ones alive is really going to be a lot of work uh, and it should be done centrally. Right now, uh, because it's just come out, uh, I'm sort of taking a step back from that to focus on trying to approach our accreditation body in Canada to have adult metabolic medicine declared a distinct subspecialty. But I'm hoping that actually at the SSIM in Freiburg, that we will have some conversations around that, because I believe that the SSIM is the best body to manage this. And if they agree... Uh, then I would, uh, you know, I'm sure that Annalisa and Elisa and, uh, and I, we would do anything we could to help them with that. Uh, I kind of see, you know, that you have a, an adult committee, right, that has membership. Uh, and, you know, every several years, the members rotate and they have a regular review process for the training objectives and, you know, update them and, uh, and whatever. That's, that's kind of uh, what I would like to see. But, you know, I understand that that's difficult and there are challenges. But in, unless we do this, right, unless we have the ability to train a lot more adult specialists, uh, we are in big trouble, I think. So uh, more than half of our respondents were over the age of 50. And if you think about that, getting accredited training is a process that could take easily like five years, right? Maybe longer to get an accredited training program in place. And then you have to run trainees through it. And that's just to replace the people that you have, right? Let alone to account for the growth in the IMD population. Uh, and this growth comes from, you know, better survival of the pediatric IMD patients, but it also comes from, and in fact, more of the growth comes from the increased recognition and ability to diagnose IMDs in the adult population. So I think Annalisa and, Elisa and I uh, believe very firmly that there is a major workforce problem here. Uh, and this is just one aspect uh, that we hope might might help it. Well, I mean, you make a, an excellent case for the work. I'm very happy to try and do our bit for championing this. And I know from the popularity of the paper that there are clinicians who are keen to find out what they can do. And, and there are patients who are well keen to be looked after better. So I, I hope this has been that will run and run. And I hope it will deliver better services for everyone. Um, I know we'd like better services to refer our patients on to as they as they grow up. Thank you so much for your time. Obviously, if you'd like to um, read Sandra's paper, please click the link in the podcast description. If you'd like to see her editorial, that's also available via the, via the links below the podcast. Sandra, it's a pleasure as always to speak to you. Thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>